Okay. Welcome, finally, to uh, actually the beginning of our class tonight. So tonight, uh, I am going to talk about Isildur and Errol the Young. But first, I have two announcements. One is a uh, that tomorrow is the is our bonus session. So we have this is our, our second of three bonus weeks for uh, Unfinished Tales. Um, we have our special Europe friendly um, session tomorrow afternoon, four p.m. Eastern time sometime prior to the crack of dawn over in Europe. Um, we'll have an, uh, an extra Q&A. There have been some questions that people have sent in that I haven't gotten a chance to answer during our sessions. There are a few topics that I haven't been able to get to uh, during the course of our uh, earlier classes in particular. There were uh, some of the stuff about uh, Thranduil and his uh, his involvement in the Battle of Dagorlad, I wanted to come back and talk about last time, but I didn't get a chance to. So, um, we're, I'm definitely going to do that uh, in tomorrow's session. We'll see what I get through tonight, and whether or not I have time for, indeed, all of uh, uh, Kyrian and Aeoral. I'm not 100% sure that I will. Um, so, anyhow, um, I'm going to uh, um, I'm going to uh, cover that. And of course, if you have other questions, if there are follow-up questions that you have, things that we didn't uh, touch on in our in the chapters that we've uh, already passed by, something you want me to go back and touch on that, you know, that, that you, you want to make sure doesn't just get left in the dust. Um, if there are other questions, uh, you know, related to the first and second and early third age stuff that you wanted to ask, please feel free to email me. You can email me at olson at mythguard.org or you can um, uh, contact me through my Tolkien professor social media. Um, you know, there are lots of, uh, there are lots of different options there. So, um, I will, or of course you can just show up live and ask questions there. So don't forget tomorrow is our bonus session. The second announcement is that we only have one month left now in this class. So voting time is right around the corner. I just wanted to let you know that uh, the Council of the Wise, who are nominating the next slate of potential uh, books to read in our next Mythgard Academy class, um, are currently deliberating and uh, should have a slate of finalists for all of our voters uh, to be able to elect our next democratically selected book um, when we finish Unfinished Tales. Um, that class is currently scheduled to begin uh, the during the the first week of April. So the, um, we're going to... I have no idea yet what it's going to be, uh, so I can't tell you that. Um, but I just wanted to let you know that that process is kicking up. Um, and I wanted to let you know that if, if you want to get involved, if you would like a say in this process, you, you still can. Um, the voting process, our 100% our, our democratic process for uh, the... Um, uh, the material uh, for the content of our Mythgard Academy classes is based upon the fundraiser that we ran last fall. Of course, the Mythgard Academy courses are completely free to take, but they're not free to run, so we definitely need your support uh, to be able to continue running uh, classes like we have. And the terms of the fundraiser, which we've been um, continuing throughout the year, are people who donate $25 get a vote. Uh, uh, to determine what is our next book to read, and that that those voting rights are good for the remainder of the year, um, and everyone who has donated a hundred dollars or more gets a seat on the Council of the Wise, who gets the chance to nominate and lobby for particular books um, to put uh, for the fi the slate of uh, finalists 
for the uh, the pool of voters. So it's been a really fun process. We've had two uh, elections so far. Uh, the Return of the King and Unfinished Tales won. I know that in some ways it seems like, you know, people might suspect or, 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 or believe that I've just kind of appointed those books, you know, that I did the Two Towers and then we did the Return of the King and then I'm, now I'm doing Unfinished Tales. It seems like I'm just kind of proceeding in a relatively orderly fashion uh, through the Tolkien corpus here in these courses. Um, it is not the case. These have been, been democratically elected and heatedly contested, I would add, um, uh, um, books. Uh, heatedly contested elections. Uh, both Return of the King and Unfinished Tales very, very narrowly won. Both of them edging out the same book, uh, 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 Ender's Game by Orson Scott Card, which came in a bare second in both of our previous two elections. Um, this um, this time, we are uh, going to be... Uh, it's it's almost certain to be a non-Tolkien book, um, so we'll see. We might do uh, some other fantasy, we might do science fiction, I have no idea uh, what lies in store, um, so yeah, it will be it will be fun. Um, and Chuck, yes, you can add uh, your donation or subscription now. The way that you would go about doing that, if you would like to be involved uh, in this exhilarating democratic process, and uh, make your voice heard for what books we talk about, and you know, do you have other favorite books that you would really like to, uh, you know, give the Mythgard Academy treatment to and really sit down and talk through together like we've been doing with Unfinished Tales, you can still get involved. The way you do that, go to the, unfin- the easiest way, go to the Unfinished Tales webpage um, on Mythgard.org. So the easiest thing is just uh, Google Mythgard and Unfinished Tales. At the bottom of the page, you know, beneath all of the schedule for the class, you'll see at the very bottom of the page a big button for our um, um, PayPal donations link. If you donate there, um, that will count towards voting rights and uh, Ed Powell, the, uh, uh, the leader of the Council of the Wise, who has a mind of metal and wheels, uh, will be uh, inviting you and uh, including you in our voting process. Um, so uh, anyway, yes, oh, uh, Kate Neville is pointing out that there is no actual heat involved in the debate. Uh, it's, a, it's a very cool, calm and collected process, um, but, uh, but, uh, but, 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 but spirited uh, at times. Um, Sarah asks if the wise get to assign themselves a color. There are quite a few of them, Sarah, so we'd have to uh, we'd have to have a highly diversified spectrum, I think, uh, in order to give each one of them a a a, 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 a different color. But uh, but they certainly, you know, if they would like to take a color unto themselves, they are very welcome to. Um, uh, yes, and uh, and Chuck, yes, you can. If you have previously donated, you absolutely can add to that, and the cumulative total uh, will uh, will will mark your voting status. So, absolutely, that will uh, um, that will certainly be able to happen. But okay, so those are the beginning of my announcements. Now, without any further delay, we shall move on to. Um, uh, we shall move on to actually talking about Isildur. So I wanted to begin with a review of of Isildur's life, just to make sure that what is said about him in Tolkien's earlier writings um, is clearer. Because what I want to keep in mind as we are um, approaching both of these two chapters, the uh, the Disaster of the Gladden Fields and the Kyrian and Aeoral chapter, my basic question is sort of... Why? What's the purpose of these chapters? Now, 
I'm very prone to phrase my question in that way, but it's kind of a dangerous way to phrase the question because, of course, I don't actually mean why in the sense of what was in Tolkien's head when he was writing these chapters. Not that that's not an interesting question, but I consider that a theoretically unanswerable question, uh, and I don't want to be getting in the business of trying to guess what is what was in Tolkien's head. That's not really my point. Rather, what I mean by that is... What do these stories do? What are these stories interested in, exactly? What is, based upon what we can see of them, the point of these stories? Um, uh, and I think that we can see a couple different things going on, and I want to I I sort of untangle those a little bit. Look at some of the, uh, some of the functions, because I think each of them has more than one function. Um, the functions that these stories uh, uh, fulfill within the Legendarium as, as Tolkien came to consider it. So, let's um, start with Isildur here. Oh, again, first one last uh, note before we begin. Don't forget the gap in time. Remember in the overview that I gave in the first class, these are much later works. Um, so, this is now, you know, from Tolkien's point of view, even uh, when he's writing these things, even The Lord of the Rings is now fairly distantly in his rearview mirror. So, um, uh, it's tempting. I know, I remember when I read Unfinished Tales for the first time, uh, I was, um, basically, I, I, I loved these chapters, and I, re I, I read these chapters as, ah, now I'm, like, getting the true story behind, so, you know, I've, I've, I'd always been interested in the Battle of the Gladden Fields and the, the, um, uh, you know, the fall of Isildur. I, I was always very attracted to Isildur as a character. Um, so I was delighted to read this chapter. And the, ex the, the effect that I remember it having on me when I first read it was um, uh, was uh, that this is, uh, this is like the real story. Now finally I'm, I'm, I'm learning what really happened at the Battle of Gladden. All those, you know, those references to this, here's the real story that lay behind those much shorter um, allusions to this event. Um, but I think that we have to be careful. Um, remember the gap in time, remember the chronology. We're, what we're seeing here is not the full story that was in Tolkien's head when he wrote The Lord of the Rings, but which he didn't have time to write out in full at that point, so he only wrote sketchy versions, but now he's writing the full version of it. That's not what this is. This is a later version of the story. This is um, a version of the story which is in some ways inconsistent with the other stories that were written before. He has developed the story. He's doing different things. This is, this is, this is, this is an account um, that has a very different effect than even the short versions of this story that we got earlier on. And, and so I think it's really important to keep that in mind and to be doing, therefore, comparison and, contrast, and, and contrasting, not just taking the, you know, the references in The Lord of the Rings and The Silmarillion um, you know, kind of for granted and then assuming that the other details we get are what lay behind that, but really looking at how the story is being developed. Now, of course, thinking of some of the terminology I've been using throughout this class, we can do, we can do a, a, a both 
a looking at and a looking along version of our analysis of this story, right? We can look at it in the sense of thinking of it in terms of Tolkien's developing ideas about the ring and about Middle-earth and about, of course, Isildur himself. We can also do looking along a looking along analysis of this. And that, of course, is what Tolkien himself does um, in the, the, the bits that we get at the end of this chapter. That is where he talks about the sources of this story. And the, the discrepancies between this version of the Isildur story and the references that we got earlier on are explained within the framework of Middle-earth by the fact that more information comes to light after the, um, after the, uh, the Lord of the Rings. So, um, so anyway, I, I, I think that that's, you know, we can look at those in different ways and we'll probably touch on that, um, that concept in, in a couple, uh, a couple different places. But I just wanted to make sure that all that stuff was kind of on the table before we begin our detailed, uh, our detailed analysis here. So, okay. Isildur, let's start with review. Actually, I apologize again for my webcam not working. I feel all, uh, insecure without my webcam. Feels really strange. I find myself, I'm, I'm continuing to, like, stare into my inert webcam, which is really sad. Anyway, um... All right, hang on a second. Just remembering something. Those of you who are... Uh, those of you who are attending live will get no benefit from this. But, nah, that's not going to work either. Never mind. I'm still trying to solve my little problem here. Okay, never mind. I'm giving it up. I'm giving it up. Um, wait, what worked? It worked? Oh, yeah, briefly. Yeah, sort of. Not exactly. Um, yeah. Well, oh, hang on a second. All right, all right, all right. One more attempt. One more attempt, because I can't resist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, it's kind of old school, but um, uh, but there we go. I feel a little bit better now. It's not the same, but anyhow, okay, it's something. So I just took off the ring. Here we go. Um, I'll put it back in my, I'll put it back in its little wallet around my neck now. Um, okay. Now, uppity young Isildur. Let's move on with things. Then, he spoke to Elendil and the sons of Elendil. This is Amandil. Uh, this is from the Akalabeth, of course. Uh, recalling the tale of the trees of Valinor, and Isildur said no word but went out by night and did a deed for which he was afterwards renowned. For he passed alone in disguise to Armenelos and to the courts of the king, which were now forbidden to the faithful. And he came to the place of the tree, which was forbidden to all by the orders of Sauron, and the tree was watched day and night by guards in his service. At that time Nimloth was dark and bore no bloom, for it was late in the autumn, and its winter was nigh, and Isildur passed through the guards and took from the tree a fruit that hung upon it and turned to go. But the guard was aroused, and he was assailed, and fought his way out, receiving many wounds, and he escaped, 
and because he was disguised, it was not discovered who had laid hands on the tree. But Isildur came at, la came at last hardly back to Romana, and delivered the fruit into the hands of Amandil, ere his strength failed him. Then the fruit was planted in secret, and it was blessed by Amandil, and a shoot arose from it and sprouted in the spring. But when its first leaf opened, then Isildur, who had lain long and come near to death, arose and was troubled no more by his wounds. Um, okay, so... Okay. Fine, fine. Okay. Several people are complaining about the audio. Is the audio better? Can you hear me better now? Okay, fine. Fine, fine. I give it up. All right. Um, now, what do you notice here? What, what I want you to do, I've got five passages um, uh, about that we get about Isildur from the Silmarillion and the, and the Fellowship of the Ring. And what I want you to do is to uh, just tell me what you notice. I want from this to draw a composite portrait of Isildur as he's represented. What we see going on with him, tell me what stuff jumps out at you. Um, what are the things that you think are most important to sort of understanding his story and his character as Tolkien is describing it in The Lord of the Rings and in The Silmarillion, both in the Akalabeth and in the Of the Rings of Power and the Third Age essay. Um... The first thing, of course, that I would point out here is his boldness, obviously. Uh, he dares to do a deed for which he was renowned. Um, this is a big deal. You know, we're told what a, uh, how, how difficult this was um, for him to sneak into Armenos, to, uh, which was forbidden to the faithful, sneak into the place of the tree, forbidden to everybody, and in the face of the guards, um, make off with one of the fruits, and he has to fight his way out. Uh, this is a big deal. This takes a lot of bravery. This takes a lot of boldness. Um, he is uh, heroic and strong-willed, I agree, with uh, with Kate's words there. Um, Chris Stevens is unsure whether to call him bold or rash. Both of them uh, seem to uh, seem, I think, Chris, to be kind of fair. Um, Don says, from the get-go, he's a defier of Sauron, and I agree. You know, I'm tempted at various points to call Isildur uh, rash or even arrogant at times, but Don, I think you touch on something very important. A crucial element of his character from the beginning is defiant. Uh, defiant of the enemy. And that seems to be a really good uh, a really good trait. Uh, you know, whether it might correlate with some other less good things, it is clearly a good thing in itself. Um, both Kate and Kevin are pointing out that it's that he's clever enough to disguise himself, um, and that um, that seems that seems uh, true. You know, this is not he's not rash in the sense of he's just gonna you know go herring off and and uh, try to bring the fruit back by force and 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 manages to pull it off. Um, he is certainly foresighted. Kate was Kate Neville was pointing to his foresightedness, and Chris Stevens was just pointing to that as well. Um, that he is, um, you know, showing that he that he he understands the significance of this. You know, there is a kind of there is a kind of reverence I think implied uh, in the risk that he takes in order to preserve the White Tree of Numenor. Um, 
I also like the argument that Tom Hillman is making, says, you know, the link between the tree and Isildur, uh, and hence the kings in Middle-earth is established. Um, yeah, now the, the link between the line of the kings and the tree is established in Numenor already. I mean, you know, we have, the, you know, the, 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 the prosperity of the line of the kings is, is at least sort of still even in, in, in some kind of superstition here, because they've, they've long ceased to care about the Eldar or the Valar. Um, but there's still that idea that the idea of that link is still present uh, in the minds of the Numenorians. But Tom, I agree there there is a kind of extra dramatic um, demonstration of that link. It's almost as if through Isildur's sacrifice or his willingness to sacrifice himself, um, that the tree, you know, he and the tree are bound together in a sense. That certainly seems to me, anyway, um, the um, uh, the implication of those final words that uh, when the first leaf opened, then Isildur is healed. Um, uh, Don and, let's see, someone earlier on was also saying, yeah, April was saying that the fact that he was going in disguise seems to be at odds with the fact that he seems to be kind of arrogant and proud in other places. Um, And I agree one of the things that we show is, again, you know, he's not, um, he does also have prudence. He does also have foresight. You know, it was, it was not only a clever, but, um, but uh, prudent, uh, and, and I'm, I'm thinking of prudence, uh, in the classical and medieval sense here. You know, if he, he, he has the virtue of prudence, uh, you know, to, to look ahead and think ahead, um, from what he's doing. So I think that that's, that's, that's good. Um, but, um, and yeah, as April points out, uh, you'd think if it was an act of defiance, he'd want it known that it was Isildur who spit in the eye of the enemy. Yes, yes, he, he is not so full of himself that he, uh, is going to, you know, shout out his own name like that. Um, he doesn't need the credit in Sauron's eyes. You know, he's, he, he is defiant, but not merely arrogantly defiant. Um, he is simply willing to risk all to stand up against evil and to protect um, that which is worthy of protection. I think that you know. So I'm certainly not trying to suggest that uh, this is this is uh, you know that there's anything wrong about what he does here. This is clearly a heroic act, and it's depicted as one. Um, but it does also. I mean, I, but I think it, we, we can begin to see some things about his character. Not all of which. Um, which I think do make a fairly complex picture when we put all of them together. Um, the other point that I would mention that uh, that a couple of you have been uh, uh, have have been pointing to is um, the fact that he is that he says nothing. Um, Amandil speaks of it, and then Isildur said no word, but went went out by night. We don't know why he didn't say anything. Um, is this because he was claiming this for himself, you know, that this is a, that he didn't want to share the glory with anybody else? Did he not want to endanger anybody else? Did he, um, was he thinking because he was so young and insignificant, you know, that maybe he would not even be recognized? That seems possible, especially, uh, if he's quite young and they've been living out of the way, you know, that he, you know, maybe, I don't know. Um, but, uh, so we can imagine some, Flatter, some flattering and some less flattering motivations for his uh, choice to uh, do this 
dangerous mission entirely solo. Um, and I don't want to put more pressure on that fact than the text will bear. But um, but I do think it's sort of an interesting observation uh, to kind of keep in mind as we move forward. Um, speaking of his defiance, this is a, a little fact. Um, this is, of course, it's not even a passage that really speaks about Isildur exactly. Um, but this is uh, one of the little facts that I have always really um, uh, that I've always really liked about Isildur. I've always been very interested in. Other strong places they built also upon either hand, that is, on either hand of Osgiliath, is the context of that sentence. Minas Itho, the Tower of the Rising Moon, eastward upon a shoulder of the Mountains of Shadow, as a threat to Mordor, and to the westward Minas Anor, the Tower of the Setting Sun, at the feet of Mount Mindaluin, as a shield against the, me- the wild men of the Dales. In Minas Ithil was the house of Isildur, and in Minas Anor the house of Anarion, but they shared the realm between them, and their thrones were set side by side in the great hall of Osgiliath. Okay. Um, I, there are two things that I think that we can see here, which to me speak interestingly of Isildur as a character. One is that he chooses as his home base, he, or rather, he chooses to build... Minasitho, his home base, on a shoulder of the Mountains of Shadow as a threat to Mordor. And again, it is defiance. Uh, it is, I agree, Yana, it's almost like a taunt to Sauron. Remember, Sauron, uh, he's, he's not, he's, he, you know, he's not like necessarily even there at the time when they land. Remember, they get, they get the, the exiles come to Middle-earth uh, before Sauron has returned, before they know that he's back, he's not yet declared war on them again, but they know he was there. They know that Mordor is his land, and the Barad-dûr is still standing. Um, so, to build your fortress, not just near the border of Mordor, but like actually on the border, I mean, on the slopes of the mountains that form the border of his... Uh, of his I mean, I, I agree, Carolyn. It's, it's, it's like directly spitting in Sauron's eye right there. Um, it is, uh, it is, it is a, a very aggressive move on Isildur's part. And that, I think, is, it seems to be part of his character. It's like that, a similar kind of defiance to that, uh, his daring of going to rescue the fruit from the tree. But, of course, the other thing is his equal ruling with his brother Anarion. Now, he's the elder brother. There is really no reason why he shouldn't claim the southern kingdom for himself. Why he should, you know, uh, uh, it's, he's, he is the eldest of them. Um, there was no sharing of the kingdom between brothers in Numenor. This is unusual. Um, there's, there's, I, I know of no precedent for this. Even among the Noldor, um, they still had a high king, even though, you know, the, the, you know, the brothers did sort of operate as peers. They still had someone who was the high king. Now, Elendo is the high king here, I realize, but again, um, it's, I, I, I have a hard time not seeing the, sh- the equal sharing with the thrones side by side in the Great Hall of Esgiliath between Isildur and Inarion um, as an act of humility on Isildur's part. Um, and I think that that's, that that's interesting. Um, yeah. Um, oh, and Steve, I agree. I absolutely agree with you, Steve, about uh, uh, the effectiveness of 
Minas Ithil. That is, uh, uh, Steve points out that Minas Ithil is built essentially on a choke point, uh, so from a military standpoint, it's very efficient to put a major guard there to watch evil forces trying to come in or going out. It does guard one of the passes uh, into and out of Mordor, as well, of course, as dominating Ithilien, um, being right near the crossroads there, so you have, um, you know, the direct line from Mordor through Osgiliath to Minas Tirith um, has Minas Ithil on its one end. Um, if the enemy tries to pass troops up or down Athelian, it's theirs. I agree. Um, there's 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 sound military planning in that. Um, but again, I think we can see there one conclusion that we I think maybe can come to from these first two passages we've looked at. Um, Isildur doesn't, I think, perhaps get quite enough credit for his brains. Um, he's showing some foresight and cleverness in both cases. Now, in both cases, it's the, it is um, it is rash. I mean, that is to say, it's it is it is a, a very notable. Um, uh, it is it, it it is a very notable act of defiance uh, on his part. Again, in both cases, but um, uh, it is uh, you know. Uh, but, but nevertheless, there is definitely there's definitely prudence, thoughtfulness, strategy here. Um, yeah. Um, Sarah says, I must be missing something, but if Isildur could build Minas Ithil, why could he not invade Mordor? You know, Sarah, I've never myself understood that this... the exact political situation at this time, after the... when right after the exiles arrive um, in Middle-earth, and before... Sauron opens war against them again. Exactly what is going on there? That is, who's in Mordor? The Baradur is still there. It's presumably not empty, Sarah, or else Isildur would presumably have taken it, right? I mean, if if the Baradur were abandoned, um, I can't imagine Isildur wouldn't have waltzed in there. Um, but <coughs> excuse me. Um, but. Uh, but he ha- but he hasn't done that. Um, however, he clearly had enough peace in order to build Minas Ithil unmolested. So, um, you know, we, we seem to be in some kind of uh, uh, some kind of intermediary period where he can't, um, he doesn't, either occupy or destroy the defenses of Mordor, but also he is able to build Minas Ithil. And Sarah, as I say, I I've never felt like I have a really intuitive grasp of what that would have actually looked like. But um, uh, but it's I, I think it's definitely an un, uninteresting question. Um, anyway, was there another point I was going to make about this? I can't remember if there was. I don't think so. Let's move on. Now we move to the Fellowship of the Ring ones. Um, keep in mind that in moving to the Fellowship of the Ring, we are moving forwards in time, uh, in Middle Earth time. Uh, that is now, this is Elrond at the Council of Elrond looking back at this time rather than it being a chronicle of that time as we were getting in the Silmarillion. However, um, this is also an earlier text. The, the, you know, of the Rings of Power in the Third Age was written, well, after the Lord of the Rings. So, uh, so this concept of Isildur is actually an earlier concept than the one that we get in of the Rings of Power in the Third Age in the Silmarillion. Um, yeah. Oh, sorry, but, um, 
Chris makes a good point. He's sort of wondering how strong the army of Isildur is. Um, you know, they might not have wanted to get involved in an invasion if, uh, uh, if you know, how many Numenorians do they have with them? Uh, you know, the, the, the sense certainly is that Gilgalad and uh, Elendil bring a very large force um, uh, from the north uh, in order to wage war on Sauron, so maybe Isildur's troop strength was insufficient. That does seem plausible, Chris. But anyway. Elrond. Council of Elrond. Alas, yes, said Elrond. Isildur took it. I should not have been. It should have been cast then into Orodruin's fire nigh at hand, where it was made. But few marked what Isildur did. He stood alone. He alone stood by his father in that last mortal contest, and by Gilgalad only Círdan stood, and I. But Isildur would not listen to our council. This I will have as were-guild for my father and my brother, he said, and therefore, whether we would or no, he took it to treasure it. But soon he was betrayed by it to his death, and so it is named in the north Isildur's Bane. Yet death maybe was better than what else might have befallen him. Okay. Now, again, with all of these passages, with all these first five passages, I want you guys to be making observations. Feel free to start typing them uh, as I'm still reading it. What do you see here? What do we learn? about Isildur here. What 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 are we getting about Isildur here um, in this passage? Yana thinks that the Isildur here sounds very different. Yes, he certainly sounds different from the Isildur we're going to get in the Disaster of the Gladden Fields. I absolutely agree, Yana. Um, good. April points out the emphasis that Isildur was loyal and stood by his father at the very end. Not only loyal, but also strong. Um, you know, that he had the capacity, you know, he is, he is the guy um, who actually cut the ring from Sauron's hand. Um, not, you know, in a fluke, but uh, quite on purpose. Um, yeah, Roy, Roy thinks that there's a sort of a similar uh, dosage, as he says, of uh, courage and pride um, in, the, uh, in the tree story. Um, yeah, we can certainly see both of those acting um, uh, in, in in here, yes. I mean, I th- we can see a mix. Is it the same mix? It's hard to say, you know, because what we didn't get in the, uh, in the Stealing the Fruit of the White Tree story is any dialogue from, uh, from Isildur. But all he says is, "This I will have as Weregild for my father and my brother." Um, now, the concept of Weregild, of course, is 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 very simple. You know, this is that's the blood price. Uh, you know, if you kill somebody's relative, um, you can prevent them coming and uh, taking vengeance upon you and slaying you by paying a Weregild. Um, uh, by by, well, I mean it's not exactly an apology, but yeah, I mean you, you are paying money to basically recompense them for the uh, injury that you have done to them. This I will have as you know. He so he claims the ring as wear guilt for his father and his brother. Sauron has killed my father and my brother. I will claim that I will take this from Sauron as a wear guild. Um, but. I agree with Sharon Powell here. Isildur's farsightedness certainly fails here. Um, uh, yeah, it absolutely does. Uh, Brian is uh, Brian Yoder is sort of wondering to what extent 
the depiction of Isildur in the Peter Jackson film is tainting uh, his analysis. It's a very um, it's a very interesting question. I'm glad you brought it up, Brian, because it's something that is really difficult to um, fight against. Of course, the whole thematic emphasis, especially in the Fellowship of the Ring film, um, you know, the 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 focus into, or rather, I should say, the role that Isildur plays primarily in that story is as like the embodiment of um, not only pride but of but of weakness. You know, the susceptibility of the heart of men, um, which of course is a theme for Aragorn through, uh, especially throughout the first film culminating uh, in Frodo and Aragorn's exchange at the Seat of Amon-Hen at the end of the film. Um, and um, I agree. We have to be careful about that, um, because they are, you know, in the film there, they're developing that one particular, um, that one particular theme. And I don't... Uh, I think we can definitely see some significant differences uh, in the way that Isildur is being treated, and the sort of the take home that we're getting um, from uh, from what we see of Isildur in this passage. Uh, note, yes, good. Carissa was just noticing exactly the same thing. I was just going to draw attention to um, the uh, maybe maybe de- death maybe was better than what else might have befallen him. Um, Carissa asks, would Isildur have been made a wraith had he not died? You know, we don't know because Isildur is the first person other than Sauron ever to put on the One Ring. Um, the Ruling Ring, you know, there's no precedent for what the Ruling Ring will do to a person um, because, again, Isildur is the only other person ever to touch it. Um, and Gollum is a kind of a bad data point. <laughs> but, um, but basically, I think... Carissa, that has to be what's in Elrond's mind here, um, especially in the context of you know the fact that at the Council of Elrond, given recent events, they all kind of have ring rates on the mind. Um, I think that's clearly the precedent in question here. Um, Isildur would certainly have been very like one of the kings who was seduced by the Nine Rings. Um, so, um, I definitely think that... Uh, um, I, I, I definitely think that that's what Elrond is pointing to there. Um, that it did lead to his death, but at the end of the day, he, he got off pretty lightly. Um, would he have become a wraith? Again, nobody knows exactly. You know, would he have set himself up as a dark lord? And, uh, you know, would he have become the next Sauron? Maybe that's what um, Elrond is pointing to. I'm not sure. Um but yet, as Tom points out, he didn't b- begin his possession of the ring with pity as Bilbo did. No, what does he begin it with? Well, this I will have as wear guild for my father and my brother. Uh, it's hard to call it greed, exactly. It's not like he's all in it for gain, exactly. But he claims it for himself. Uh, Chris Stevens was wondering if if this, you know... Th- th- that sounds a little bit like a ring-induced rationalization, possibly. Um, Carolyn is reminded of of, uh, of Smaug thinking about you know treasure in this sense and dragon sickness and all that kind of thing. Um, yeah, but um, anyway, yeah, he's he's. Uh, several of you are talking about vengeance uh, and revenge. That does seem to be um, 
the thing that they that one thing anyway that's on his mind um but even if you you know he has a long history with sauron right and a long history of defying sauron so i don't think we have to imagine him throwing sauron down and cutting the ring from his finger is merely sort of personal vengeance on his part he's got lots of other reasons uh to overthrow sauron but you know as april points out and as chris was suggesting Guild is a handy kind of justification, and it really does kind of sound like a justification, um, I think, at this point. Remember, in The Fellowship of the Ring, um, in, the, in, in the context of this story, we already have an example of the ring placing or inspiring in the mind of its wielder or taker a justification that will give them an excuse to have it. For Smeagol, it was the birthday present, right? Uh, for Bilbo, it was the uh, the lying first edition first edition version of the Riddle game, right? His, uh, his winning the ring as a present in the Riddle game. For Isildur, it seems to be Weregild, right? Uh, the knowledge that he should not really be claiming the enemy's ring, but coming up with a justification for it. Um, yeah, Sarah is pointing out as, uh, uh, as, um, uh, as I'm sure that, uh, Carolyn was before as well. He took it to treasure it. Sounds a little suspect. Uh, who would really treasure a blood price? Yeah, it doesn't really sound like he's primarily thinking of his father and brother there, right? Um, it's, he's, it's not to honor the memory of his father and brother that he's taking it. He's taking it to treasure it. Um, yeah, good. So, the striking th- one of the striking things to me, uh, one of the striking things to me here is his is the lack of foresight. That was one thing that we saw. We saw boldness. Uh, we saw daring. We saw defiance, which tended perhaps in the direction of pride and arrogance. In the two other Isildur stories here. Um, we see though we see things like that, but untempered, with the kind of wisdom and foresight that we tended uh, to see before. Um, oh, that's uh, that's very interesting, Jonathan. I'd never thought about that. Um, that uh, Jonathan is suggesting, Jonathan Spencer su- suggesting, there's a kind of ironic parallel here between his taking of the ring and his taking of the fruit of the white tree. Um, that in a sense, taking the ring is like taking the fruit. It's like taking the seed of the tree, just as this, the fruit is going to preserve uh, the white tree and the sort of inheritance, the, 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 her- the, the, the Numenorean heritage and their connection back to the Eldar and the Valar. So here he's keeping, he's keeping the fruit of evil alive. Um, and it's 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 a very bitter bitter and ironic kind of uh, kind of parallel. I I really like that, Jonathan. I never thought of that before. Um, yeah, yeah, good. Um, and Annie is pointing out. Annie Britton is pointing out that the text does specifically say that Isildur was betrayed by it, by the ring, rather than by his own actions, suggesting that the ring is in fact acting um, in some sense independently of him here. Um, yeah, good. Now. Um, Let's look at the next one. This is from later in the Council of Elrond. This is Gandalf reading Isildur's own words. Again, tell me what you see here. Tell me what we learn here. 
The great ring shall go now to be an heirloom of the North Kingdom, but records of it shall be left in Gondor, where also dwell the heirs of Elendil, lest a time come when the memory of these great matters shall grow dim. And after these words Isildur described the ring such as he found it. It was hot when I first took it, hot as a gleed, and my hand was scorched, so that I doubt if ever again I shall be free of the pain of it. Yet even as I write it is cooled, and it seemeth to shrink, though it loseth neither its beauty nor its shape. Already the writing upon it, which at first was as clear as red flame, fadeth, and is now only barely to be read. It is fashioned in an elven script of Eregion, for they have no letters in Mordor for such subtle work, but the language is unknown to me. I deem it to be a tongue of the black land, since it is foul and uncouth. Whatever evil it saith, I, what evil it saith I do not know, but I trace here a copy of it, lest it fade beyond recall. The ring misseth, maybe, the heat of Sauron's hand, which was black and yet burned like fire, and so Gilgalad was destroyed. And maybe, were the gold made hot again, the writing would be refreshed. But for my part, I will risk no hurt to this thing, of all the works of Sauron, the only fair. It is precious to me, though I buy it with great pain. Okay. So what do we learn here? What do we learn about Isildur? And in particular, what do we learn about the ring and Isildur's relationship with the ring and sort of what he is thinking about the ring? Yes, of course, both uh, Neil and Chris Stevens at the same time are pointing out the precious reference, right? That, that's, a, <clears throat> that's a word, certainly, that leaps off the page, in particular in the context of the Fellowship of the Ring. It wouldn't leap so strongly off the page if it were used in the Silmarillion, for instance. In the Fellowship of the Ring, it certainly does. Um, yeah, good. Yana is pointing out that the ring hurts him already physically, if not mentally. Yes, though notice the context of the pain. Um, he says that his hand was scorched. It burned his hand because it was hot when he first took it. That Sauron's hand was hot. Um, uh, Sauron's hand was black but burned like fire. Sauron apparently killed Gilgalad with his own bare hands, with with his burning hands, is apparently how Gilgalad was killed. And thus the golden ring, which he had on his finger, was piping hot when Isildur took it. It was as hot as a gleed. It was as hot as a, a, as a red coal. Um, but... And, and so he burned himself. So apparently he's got, like, on his hand or on his fingers... Um, you know, uh, blistering scorch marks in the shape of the ring when he went to pick it up, like, presumably, like you would get if you went to pick up any gold ring that had been sitting in a fire. Um, so, re- remember Frodo's shrinking palm when Gandalf takes the uh, ring out of the fire and drops it in Frodo's palm in Bag End. He's afraid his hand is going to get scorched, right? Because anyone would be afraid who had a piece of metal sitting in the midst of their fireplace. Um, Most people would not want to uh, take that metal immediately onto their palms. Um, And of course, from from that incident, that is the incident in Frodo's sitting room, we know that it takes quite a lot of heat to heat the ring. The, the, the ring passes through Frodo's fire not only undamaged, but even unheated. Um, that's why it does not hurt Frodo when he puts it on his palm. Um, so the suggestion is it takes a lot to get the ring hot. Um, that the ring's heat is, not, is presumably not only a physical response to the heat of Sauron's hand, um, but also in some sense a sort of, you know, 
resonance with his power. But it does... When he speaks of his hand being scorched, I I understand that as meaning that literally. That it was it was hot. You know, he says it was as hot as a gleed, and it scorched me when I tried to pick it up. Um, and so I doubt if I ever again I shall be free of the pain of it. I think that means that the burns he got from the ring when he first picked it up haven't healed, and he doesn't think they'll ever heal. And that itself is kind of interesting, actually. What you probably see me building towards, if you are thinking towards uh, the disaster of the Gladden Fields from Unfinished Tales, I don't see any evidence in this passage that it hurts Isildur to wear the ring now. It was hot when he first took it, but it fadeth, right? It's now now getting cool. Um, And I don't see any reason to believe that when Isildur picks up the ring and puts it on now, it still hurts him. Um, Or that it hurts him when he wears it. Um, The reference to the pain of the ring seems to simply be about the hotness of it. And again, the pain, he says, will never go away, is not the pain of wearing the ring. It's It's the pain of his hand being scorched. When he first took it, he did not put it on. Right? He picked it up. Uh, and was standing there in conversation with Gil- with uh, with not not with Gilgalad, uh, but with Elrond and Círdan. He did not um, uh, put it on his hand. So the pain w- of which he doubts he shall ever be free is not the pain of wearing the ring. It's the pain of the burn he received from picking up the ring. So the burn that he received, and this certainly seems to add to the idea that it is not merely a physical heat that the ring had acquired from the burning hand of Sauron, but um, that it was in some sense a spiritual heat as well, or rather that that that, that heat that he was feeling was a um, testimony to its, its power and evil force in some way, and not just its physical temperature. Um, the fact that those burns have not healed and he does not now expect them to heal seems to me to, again, point to that and to, to reflect that. Um... He says, at the end, it is precious to me, though I buy it with great pain. Um, uh, Jeff Allen says, um, wait, see. Oh, no, sorry. Paul um, was saying that he's, he's always read that last line uh, to mean the pain of what he has lost, uh, his father and brother. Um, you know, uh, I'd, Paul, I'd often always read it, in the, I'd often read it in the same way too. That is to say, he's looking at this and saying, this is what he has gained. You know, the war against Sauron cost them a lot. They've paid a heavy price. What has he gained? What has he gotten back? He's kept his kingdom. They've kept their lives. They've preserved the people from Sauron and his armies. That's a good thing. But he's lost his father. He's lost his brother. They've, you know, they've Gilgalad is is no more. Um, But he does. uh, He has one thing on the uh, on the the other side of the scales. He's gained this ring. Um, He has bought it with great pain. I think this is picking up on the Weregild language. Um, again, back to his justification. He's bought it. He's not taken it, right? He's not seized it. He's bought it. And he's bought it with pain. There's something... It's just self-sacrificial, right? It sounds kind of like a rationalization, doesn't it? Um, 
Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, as Neil says, he deserves it now. Uh, Josh asks, what is a gleed? Uh, it was many years before I encountered the word gleed anywhere else, um, other than this passage. Um, gleed means a coal, like a hot, uh, a red-hot coal in the fire. Um, so uh, if you... You might have uh, after you burn away the logs, there will be a, a bunch of gleads uh, there in the bottom, uh, amongst the ashes in your fireplace. Um, so that's again his his explanation of how hot it was when he picked it up. Um, okay, we'll come back to this business with the paint, um, but I, I wanted to make sure that we looked at this because I'm going to want to. I, I do want to refer back to this when we get to the reference to Isildur's pain wearing the ring in the in the in the the disaster of the Gladden Fields. Um, we see, of course, what would appear to be the additional hold that the ring is already gaining over him. Um, you know, uh, we were sort of, you know, several of us were suggesting that his reference to Guild already sounds like the kind of rationalization that new possessors of the ring seem to be prone to making. Um, if that's the case here, we see him beginning to go through a thought process which is quite like what we've seen in Gollum, in Bilbo, um, and even in Frodo. This kind of, um, you know, for my part, I will risk no hurt to this thing, right? Frodo even can't get himself to throw it into his fireplace. Um, uh, Cannot will to damage it. Um... Yeah. So anyway, uh, that I th- I think is um, yeah yeah. Um, Roy is uh, drawing attention to the phrase, but for my part, um, yes, I agree that 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 is a really interesting moment. For my part, I will risk no hurt to this thing. Roy, doesn't that sound like slightly divisive? Um, possibly at Elrond's expense, right? Sort of a recognition, uh, almost. Uh, Almost the shadow of a confession that there are others who did, in fact, want to hurt this thing, right? Um, and his own reassertion, right? For my part, I will risk no hurt to this thing. You know, other people might have different opinions, but I'm not going to let this thing get hurt. Um, so, again, especially in the context of Elrond's previous comment, that seems interesting. Okay, one more. And that is the description of uh, the disaster of the Gladden Fields that is in the Silmarillion. This is the passage from Of the Rings of Power and the Third Age. The ruling ring passed out of knowledge, even of the wise in that age, yet it was not unmade, for Isildur would not surrender it to Elrond and Círdan who stood by. They counseled him to cast it into the fire of Orodruin nigh at hand, in which it had been forged, so that it should perish, and the power of Sauron be forever diminished, and he should remain only as a shadow of malice in the wilderness. But Isildur refused this counsel, saying, This I will have as Weregild for my father's death and my brother's. Was it not I that dealt the enemy his death blow? And the ring that he held seemed to him exceedingly fair to look on, and he would not suffer it to be destroyed. Taking it, therefore, he returned it first to Minas Anor, and there planted the white tree in memory of his brother Anarion. But soon he departed, and after he had given counsel to Meneldil, his brother's son, and had committed to him the realm of the south, he bore away the ring to be an heirloom of his house, and marched north from Gondor, by the way that Elendil had come, 
and he forsook the south kingdom, for he purposed to take up his father's realm in Eriador, far from the shadow of the black land. But Isildur was overwhelmed by a host of orcs that lay in wait. Actually, let's pause here for a second. Let's talk about the first paragraph first. So here we have his claiming of the ring. What do you notice here? Now, this is different. This is from the Silmarillion. This is from uh, Of the Rings of Power in the Third Age in the Silmarillion. So this is written later than the Fellowship of the Ring passages we were just looking at. We can see, of course, we have the quotation of the This I Will Have is Where Guild for My Father's Death and My Brother's. But we get something extra that was not in Elrond's, ver- in Elrond's account that he told to the council. Was it not I that dealt the enemy his death blow? Um, April points out uh, he here gives two justifications for taking the ring, right? Um, as Neil says, he's justifying it by right of war. Not only is he owed a were-guild from Sauron, and so therefore, you know, just as Bilbo was owed a present for winning the riddle game, and just as just as Smeagol was owed a birthday present by Diego, at least as he convinces himself, so he, Isildur, seems to convince himself that he deserves uh, the ring. Doubly, right? It's, a, it's, it's here a double justification, as April says. Um, he deserves it because he is owed a were-guild by Sauron, and also he deserves it because it is his rightful booty. Um, he, it is his right to take something from the slain. Um, he has won it. Um, so uh, I, th- th- I think that we, we seem to be getting that emphasized here. Um, yeah, good. Um, Good. Sarah is pointing out, neither here nor in the Fellowship of the Ring passages do we get any evidence of attraction to power. Um, as in Boromir's ring-induced monologue at the end of the Fellowship of the Ring, where the ring uh, seems to be acting upon his desire to rule, uh, and, um, uh, and sort of getting to him that way, as, uh, as Sarah's pointing out, um, his emphasis is only on its beauty, on how fair it is. We got that in his scroll that Gandalf recites, and we get um, and we get that here in this passage as well. The ring seemed to him exceedingly fair to look upon. I would add, Sarah, that I do think that there is, in some sense, an implication of a temptation to power um, in the fact that he is deeming it, um, setting it aside as an heirloom uh, for his house. Um, he, uh, there seems something to me, how do I say, a little grandiose there, right? That that it's going to be an heirloom of his house. This is going to be one of those things we're going to hand down in our family, and it's it's going to be a real mark of distinction. Um, that his his house is going to be, you know, the 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 reputation. The stature, in some sense, of his house is going to be augmented by having this as a mighty heirloom. Um, you know, I, I, I'm not sure, Sarah, in some ways this kind of sounds to me like at least a cousin of a temptation to power. I mean, of course, he doesn't need... Um, he is already what Boromir fancies himself that he could become, right? So, uh, to some extent, um, Isildur is insulated from the temptation to power by the fact that already has lots of power. But, um, 
But anyway, I, 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 I do think that there's... That's why I'm thinking... That's why it seems to me that his talking about the heirloom um, is something which sort of, for his purposes, I think is kind of associated with power. Um, okay, let's see. Um, oh, good, and Chuck was making a similar point about the fairness of the ring, that, that it's, it's, it's interesting that we get that emphasis on its beauty. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Good. Kate makes a wonderful point. Um, here, Cirdan and Elrond are saying that Sauron is not killed while Isildur is talking of a death blow. Um, excellent. Um, he seems to be willingly fooling himself. Um, he is not only um, refusing their counsel, their advice of what he should do with the ring, but he's not even paying attention to what they're trying to tell him about Sauron. Um, there seems to be some willful self-deception there. And again, think how far we are from the uh, the foresighted and prudent Isildur that we got closer to the beginning of his career. Um, yeah. Um, let's see. Uh, sorry, I'm just looking through some of your other comments here. Um... Yeah, several of you are pointing out how uh, he is um, forsaking the South Kingdom, uh, and that he seems to want he, that he wants to be as far from the shadow of the Black Land as possible here, um, which is sort of an interesting move on his part, and certainly a significant departure from young Isildur that we saw before. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Good. Well, let's go on to the second paragraph, which describes the actual battle. But Isildur was overwhelmed by a host of orcs that lay in wait in the Misty Mountains, and they descended upon him at unawares in his camp between the Greenwood and the Great River, nigh to nigh to Ningloron, the Gladden Fields, for he was heedless and set no guard, deeming that all his foes were overthrown. There, well nigh all of his pe- all his people were slain, and among them were his three elder sons, Elendur. Aratan, and Kirion. But his wife and his youngest son, Velandil, he had left in Imladris when he went to the war. Isildur himself escaped by means of the ring, for when he wore it he was invisible to all eyes. But the orcs hunted him by scent and slot until he came to the river and plunged in. There the ring betrayed him and avenged its maker, for it slipped from his finger as he swam, and it was lost in the water. Then the orcs saw him as he labored in the stream, and they shot him with many arrows, and that was his end. Okay. What do you notice here? Yeah, Dime, I've always been a big fan of uh, scent and slot as well. Um, a wonderful observation, Carolyn says he's he may be moving away from the Black Land, but he's now carrying the power of the Black Land with him. Yes. Um, well, one quick thing that I notice here, um, I, say, I say quick because I, I, with all of my delays earlier, I'm going to need to accelerate a bit here. Um, Isildur. Well, I think he comes off as kind of pitiful, actually, uh, in this passage. If you sort of you look at all the things that we're told about him here, first. He's ambushed because he's heedless. Now he has some pretty good reason to be um, uh, to be 
heedless and to set no guard, he deems that all his foes were overthrown. And it's not like he's got no reason to think that. Uh, but again, you know, we think back to the prudent and foresighted Isildur that we got before. Um, you know, to be caught flat-footed in your camp because you didn't even bother to set a guard, you know, that's uh, that's really failing military leadership 101 there, you know? I mean, that's pretty bad. Um, so he looks sloppy and arrogant and overconfident, and then he flees. You know, he we, Isildur himself escaped by means of the ring. Escaped. So they're all destroyed. His three sons, um, uh, all, you know... Um, his, his, you know, well nigh all his people were slain, and among them were his three sons, but Isildur himself escaped by means of the ring. Now, it doesn't say when he escaped. Um, we don't know that he, I mean, he, he might have run away at the beginning, he might have only escaped after everybody else was dead. We're not really told, but the word that's used, escape, there, um, is, uh, is, I think, a, a, a really conspicuous word <clears throat> under the circumstances. It doesn't sound particularly noble. Um, you know, now, I, I, of course, I'm thinking of Tolkien's comments and on fairy stories about there being nothing wrong with escaping. Uh, but, you know, if you're the leader of a band that is being annihilated, escaping there is not extremely honorable. Um, uh Anyway, there's at least the chance um, that his escape might have been cowardly. That idea is kind of emphasized for me, or rather uh, seems to me to make to be made more likely by the way in which his end is described. Um, he escapes, but he's being hunted. So he's being hunted by scent and slot. So now the great Isildur... Uh, the king, you know, the last high king of Gondor and Arnor, um, the, you know, the last surviving uh, leader of the Numenorians from across the sea, um, is now being hunted like a wild beast uh, by orcs through the woods, possibly leaving some of his men to die, possibly running after they are all, after they're all dead, who knows, but... Um, you know, Nancy's asking, doesn't he need to escape to protect the ring? Yeah, but don't invent excuses for him. We aren't given that here, right? We're not told. If we were told in this paragraph, but Isildur knew that he must pre- prevent the orcs from getting the ring at all cost and for very good reason, that would be one thing. But we don't get that here. All we see is him running. Okay, again, what I'm trying to do is, is you know, several of you keep referring forward to the Unfinished Tales story. Forget it right now. We're not there yet. What I'm trying to do is to get where we started from, because once we see that clearly, then we'll, we'll, we'll be able to see more significantly the force of the changes that Tolkien makes, what he emphasizes, how he re- the, what the story of Isildur is that we get in the Unfinished Tales version. Because the more closely you look... Um, the more closely you look at the um, uh, at the earlier stories, at the Lord of the Rings and the Silmarillion versions, the more striking is the new story of Isildur that we get in Unfinished Tales. Um, so, 
Sorry, I guess it, I, uh, some of you are reporting some audio issues. Uh, I hope that uh, doesn't continue to be too extreme. Um, at the very least, I feel quite confident that the recording will not have those issues. So if you lose me for any longer bits, uh, I hope you can kind of make it up there. Anyway, sorry about that. Okay, now... Um, <clears throat> What we see here in the Silmarillion account and of the Rings of Power in the Third Age is he is he is careless, so he's failed as a captain, as a military captain, by not even posting guards, and so because of his poor leadership, his people are his overconfidence and poor leadership, understandable though it might be, his people are ambushed. His men all die, but he does not because he has the magic ring that makes him invisible. So he. He escapes, he runs away, invisible, but is hunted like, like a wild beast by the orcs. Then look at the description of his death. It slipped from his finger as he swam, and it was lost in the water. Then the orcs saw him as he labored in the stream, and they shot him with many arrows, and that was his end. His end is pretty ignominious. Um, he is not just shot as he's running away or something. He is described as laboring in the stream. So here's Isildur having lost the ring and he's thrashing around. And so they just see this guy thrashing around helplessly in the river and shoot him to death. It's a very undramatic and, I think, ignominious death for Isildur, High King of Gondor and Arnor. Um, this is a guy, again, you compare his death to his father's death and his brother's death, and, you know, this is not, this is not how he would have wanted to go out. Um, but this is what we get of him. This is the picture that we're given. Now, look at the flight as it's depicted. Now we're in Unfinished Tales. Now we move forward. The orcs were now drawing near. Isildur turned to his esquire. Ochtar, he said, I give, now, I, I give this now into your keeping. And he delivered to him the great sheath and the shards of Narsil, Elendil's sword. Save it from capture by all means that you can find, and at, all, and at all costs, even at the cost of being held a coward who deserted me. Take your companion with you and flee. Go, I command you. Then Octar knelt and kissed his hand, and the two young men fled down into the dark valleys right before the orcs close in. Um, and then um, the parallel passage and I think they're quite closely and it would seem to me deliberately parallel uh, Elendur my king said Elendur Kirion is dead and Aratan is dying your last counselor must advise nay command you as you commanded Octar go take your burden and at all costs bring it to the keepers even at the cost of abandoning your men and me King's son, said Isildur, I know that I must do so, but I feared the pain, nor could I go without your leave. Forgive me and my pride that has brought you to this doom. Elendur kissed him. Go, go now, he said. This is miles and miles away from that description in the Silmarillion that we get of this moment. First of all, notice in his conversation with Akhtar, uh, his esquire here, um, save it from capture by all means that you find. Notice first the parallel between this and what Isildur himself did in his youth, maybe when he was about Akhtar's age, 
um, in Numenor by going to save the White Tree so that that heritage from of old could be preserved and could be passed down and, and kept alive even as Numenor dies. So here, even as he is dying, he wants to preserve that fruit. He wants to preserve that seed. He wants to preserve that remnant. Uh, that remnant of, of the earlier time. Um, I apologize for sound problems. I have no idea why. There is no... Uh, I, I am just... I am very frustrated with my GoToWebinar connection tonight, uh, everyone. I'm sorry. Um, there's nothing different that I'm doing that would make my audio kick out. Um, um Okay, can you hear me now? Can everybody hear me now? Yeah, okay. We'll see if that does any better. Um, I just made one small adjustment. We'll see if that bears any fruit. But speaking of fruit, what I was saying was, in that first passage, we are getting we get a deliberate what, 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 we we get a parallel anyway. What what seems to me an echo of Isildur's noble and valiant action in Numenor um, to preserve the white tree. Um, that's the context. That seems to be. The, that's now the context that we're given for his preservation of the ring. Um, and notice when he's speaking to Akhtar. Um, save it from capture by all means that you can find and at, and at all costs, even at the cost of being held a coward who deserted me. You know, it's possible when you run away from this battle, people might accuse you of cowardice. It might look bad if you were to survive and run away while everyone else dies. But you know what? Even if your reputation suffers, you, ha you have the responsibility to take that shame upon yourself. Um, I, I ask you to pay that price for the sake of preserving uh, you know, the sword of Elendil for Vilandil, my new heir. Um, that is, again, th you see, of course, the implications of how this, even before uh, he himself flees with the ring, were being prompted for that, right? Just in case, from reading the earlier accounts of Isildur, we might have been thinking that he acted as a coward in the end, um, that his courage and defiance failed him, and that uh, perhaps he had been corrupted by the ring, um, so that now even his courage was, um, uh, was, was escaping him, his courage and his honor to die defending his men uh, instead of uh, to save his own life. Remember also there you know the other thing with the uh, with the Silmarillion account. Remember the peril. Remember Frodo's temptation in uh, um, in the Barrow when he is tempted to put on the ring and escape with his own life, lamenting that his friends are all killed, but uh, everyone would agree that there had been nothing that he could do, um, though he is free and alive himself. Remember that. I think it's the parallel with that passage, that Frodo temptation, that makes me wonder if his escaping with the ring and fleeing like a wild animal being pursued by scent and slot and hunted by the orcs um, is not, did not originate in a temptation from the ring. Um, 
so anyway, but again, not here, not so here. Um, and with the parallel with uh, with Akhtar, now Elendur has to command him. Right, he's not leaving his sons and his men to die. He is being commanded. Elendur, his son and last counselor, must admi- advise, nay, command him as he commanded Akhtar. Go. Uh, take your burden, and at all costs, bring it to the keepers. Now notice, it's not just to preserve the ring, even, right? Don't let the enemy get the ring. Don't let the orcs have the ring. But rather, um, it is our responsibility to get rid of this thing. We cannot let the the servants of the enemy take it back. Um, We must bring it to the keepers of the three rings so that they can take it and destroy it, or whatever they choose to do. Um... So, again, the whole context of that is now really changed. And with him departing, making a sacrifice, a sacrifice of his own pride, at the moment that he's confessing his own pride, I knew that I must do so, but I feared the pain, nor could I go without your leave. He admits his fear, right? He calls, he's almost calling himself a coward here. I know that that's what I really should do, but I was too afraid to do it, he admits to his son, right? That's a very, that's a very, uh, uh, non-arrogant thing to say. Nor could I go without your leave. Forgive me and my pride that has brought you to this doom. The whole attitude of Isildur is, I think, radically different than what we see in the Fellowship of the Ring and the Silmarillion passages, especially the latter ones. Um, okay. Now, also, we have the fact that the ring, now in this conception, seems to hurt him all the time. And again, this is why I was trying to maintain that distinction. Remember at the very beginning of class, I said, keep in mind, what we're getting here is not just, here is the story that really lies behind what was really in Tolkien's mind when he wrote The Fellowship of the Ring. That's why I, I don't believe when he describes the pain that Isildur feels in wearing the ring that that was what was in his head when he wrote that passage in The Fellowship of the Ring. I don't believe that. The passage in The Fellowship of the Ring seems to be seems to be describing something quite different. He's playing on that. There is no doubt in my mind that the the that when you look at the other way around, that is when we look at the Unfinished Tales passage and compare it backwards, that this text is recalling the references to his doubting if he will ever be free of the pain of it. But it's, I believe, reinterpreting that passage and adding an element which I do not see evidence of in uh, um, in the uh, Fellowship of the Ring account. So uh, let's um, let's look at this here. <clears throat> There was not only cunning in the attack, but fierce and relentless hatred. The orcs of the mountains were stiffened and commanded by grim servants of Barad-dûr, sent out long before to watch the passes, and though it was unknown to them, the ring, cut from his black hand two years before, was still laden with Sauron's evil will, and called to all his servants for their aid. The Dunedain had gone scarcely a mile when the orcs moved again. This time they did not charge, but used all their forces. They came down on a wide front, which bent into a crescent, and soon closed into an unbroken ring about the Dunedain. They were silent now, and kept at a distance out of the range of the dreaded steel bows of Numenor, though the light was fast failing, and Isildur had all too few archers for his need. He halted. 
There was a pause, though the most keen-eyed among the Dunedines said that the orcs were moving inwards stealthily, step by step. Elendor went to his father, who was standing dark and alone, as if lost in thought. Aterinya, he said, what of the power that would cow these foul creatures, and command them to obey you? Is it then of no avail? Alas, it is not, Senya. I could not, I cannot use it. I dread the pain of touching it, and I have not yet found the strength to bend it to my will. It needs one greater than I now know myself to be. My pride has fallen. It should go to the keepers of the three. Okay. Um, this passage I find really remarkable. There, is a, there are a bunch of things that we see here, a bunch of things that we learn here. What do we learn here specifically about Isildur's relationship with the ring? and about his understanding of the ring. Remember what we got before, right? He claimed it as Weregild. He claimed that he had earned it by dealing Sauron his death blow. He admired it for its beauty. He took it to treasure it. And he said that of all of the works of Sauron, it is the only fair. And he was going to keep it as an heirloom. What do we see now? He understands exactly what it is, and what it's for. That was not obvious, or at least he wasn't admitting it to himself, right? Um, he did not say in his scroll, yeah, it's true that this thing is like a weapon to dominate the wills of others and is really thoroughly evil, but it's pretty, <laughs> right? That wasn't what he said. He's like, you know, of all the works of Sauron, this is the only fair. Here, he reveals that he knows full well exactly what that ring is for. And that he had taken it in order to use it for that purpose. I have not yet found the strength to bend it to my will. It needs one greater than I now know myself to be, implying previously he did not know himself to be insufficiently great. He thought he before thought himself great enough to bend the ring to his will. It has turned out that he is wrong. He has not yet found the strength to bend it to his will. He has apparently attempted to find the strength to bend it to his will. Um, but now, having tried and failed, he now realizes, he now knows that the ring requires one who is greater than he to bend it to his will. He has failed. So, he's failed to bend it to his will. <clears throat> this, first of all, is like a double confession. Um, this is, uh, you know, several of you are saying, that, you know, Steve is pointing out this is, a, this is we see a lot of humility here. We're seeing, like, triple humility here, right? First of all, he's admitting, I kept it because I wanted to try to bend it to my will. And, to be honest, I've been attempting to bend it to my will. I've been trying to use the ring to dominate the wills of others. But not only am I confessing that I've been trying to do that, I'm also confessing that I failed, that I uh, that I that I am not. It turns out strong enough to do that. My pride has fallen. That sentence means like three or four different things. That's true in several senses, right? The pride that kept the ring in the first place, attempting to deceive others and possibly himself about why he was keeping it. Uh, the uh, the the pride that led him to try to use the ring to try to dominate the wills of the the will of others the pride which led him to believe that he was 
in some sense, a kind of like successor to uh, um, to Sauron. Um, all of these things he is confessing and repenting of. It should go to the keepers of the three. He's going to hand it over. Um, he's going to give it to Elrond in Rivendell when he gets there. Tom Hillman points out that he still can't or doesn't want to uh, throw the ring into the fire, which is the only right thing. Um, instead, he has the terrible idea of passing the buck. It's true, but but also, but Tom, I, I want to kind of throw him a bone here. It's like Frodo can't bear to throw it in the fire, right? He's got to give it to Gandalf, and Gandalf chucks it in the fire. Um, Isildur... Um, Remember also Gandalf saying that he doesn't think that Bilbo would have just thrown the ring away? Um, the will to damage the ring is one of seems to be one of the first things to go uh, in all of the ring ra- in all of the ring wraiths. No, all of the the ring bearers that we see. Um, so it I just as Bilbo was able to hand it on to Frodo, hand it on to his heir. So, handing it to the keepers of the three seems to be the closest that Isildur can come to giving it up. He says he's going to give it up. Um, that he has, in this sense, conquered um, uh, the temptation. And as Yana points out, the elves could still very easily take it to Mount Doom at this point. Absolutely, There's nothing stopping them doing that right now. It's two years since Sauron fell. Um, And what's more, he knows what the Keepers of the Three want, right? It's not like he's trying to deceive himself into thinking maybe they're going to keep it, right? He knows, you know, Círdan and Elrond were standing right there telling him what he should do, and he didn't do it. So, by giving it to them, he knows what they're going to want to do with it. So he is, it seems to me, at, at, at least implicitly, and I think even even explicitly here, saying... Um, I'm going to give it to them so they can destroy it. It's true that he can't destroy it himself. Um, but, uh, <coughs> but Tom, I do agree with you in saying that he still, he still shows that he's under the influence of the ring. But again, he seems almost to, uh, uh, he, he seems almost to recognize that fact here. Yes, Robert, you're right. He is going the wrong way. Uh, 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 but, but again, his intentions seem to be, uh, uh, seem to be seem to be correct here. Um, so uh, anyway, I, I, the whole relationship between him and the ring here is, I think, much clearly different. Now, does that mean that this is a contradiction of the previous things? No, I don't think so. I think that what we are getting here is a moment of repentance, a moment of recognition, a moment of honesty with. Uh, both with Elendor and with himself, that the Isildur of the Chronicles that we heard about before never showed, at least never showed in public. Well, not public. The note that Gandalf read wasn't a public note. Uh, you know, uh, that, was a, that, was, that was private. And yet, um, even there, we see him um, sort of being deceived in some sense. Um, or perhaps deceiving himself. Um, one last point, and then I will let you go, um, especially since uh, you seem to be continuing to have audio problems. As I say, the recording won't have audio problems, but I, I apologize for all of the 
technical difficulties here tonight. One last uh, point, and then we'll move. And then uh, I'll, I'll, we'll do. I will do air all the young tomorrow uh, during the bonus session. Um, remember the image of him being hunted like a wild animal to the river, and when the ring slips off his finger, him laboring in the stream and being executed by orcs, the orcs who had pursued him. The hunt finally catches him as he attempts and fails to swim in the river um, and is just shot down from the, st- from the banks. So it was that he came at last to the banks of Anduin at the dead of night, and he was weary, for he had made a journey that the Dunedain on such ground could have made no quicker, marching without halt and by day. The river was... Th- that is to say, his flight to the river is an athletic feat that any Numenorean would have been proud of. Um, so, so already we have his flight itself being described in, in almost heroic, at least in sort of epic terms. The river was swirling dark and swift before him. He stood for a while, alone and in despair. Note, the orcs are not hunting him by scent, slot, or otherwise. That does not happen in this version of the story. So we don't get that picture of him, you know, helpless and terrified and running before his foes. Um, Instead, we have him heroically uh, marching on his own, you know, undertaking a solo journey of great hardship and weariness, which few other Numenorians could have, uh, could have attained. Um, and now remember that swirling, dark and swift river that he's looking at. He stood for a while, alone and in despair. Then in haste, he cast off all his armor and weapons, save a short sword at his belt and plunged into the water. He was a man of strength and endurance that few even of the Dunedain of that age could equal, but he had little hope to gain the other shore. Again, the swimming of the river at night under these circumstances and in this place is a feat which almost no, not even of the Dunedain, could hope to achieve. Notice also that he has overcome his despair. He is fleeing. He has his emergency rations. Remember in the notes we, uh, we, we hear about the the belt that the Numenorean soldiers would have had, which would have contained his emergency uh, waybread and his emergency little like uh, uh, pseudo miravore thing, because that was not found with his armor and weapons, right? So he took it with him, and he took his short sword. In other words, he's not just throwing away all his gear. He is not abandoning or giving up on his quest. Um, he is still persevering under the most difficult possible of circumstances. Before he had gone far, he was forced to turn almost north against the current, and strive as he might, he was ever swept down towards the tangles of the gladden fields. They were nearer than he had thought, and even as he felt the stream slacken, and had almost won across, across, he found himself struggling among great rushes and clinging weeds. There suddenly he knew that the ring had gone. So, He's almost succeeded in heroically crossing that river. He's a com- Remember, he was just laboring in the stream. The orcs shot him from the bank. I don't know how many yards he got out into the river, but it wasn't very many uh, in the Silmarillion version. Here, he's made it almost all the way across, against all odds. He's just about made it. Amazing! There suddenly he knew that the ring had gone. By chance, or chance well used, it had left his hand and gone where he could never hope to find it again. 
At first so overwhelming was his sense of loss that he struggled no more, and would have sunk and drowned. But swift as it, as it had come, the mood passed. The pain left him. A great burden had been taken away. His feet found the riverbed, and heaving himself up out of the mud, he floundered through the reeds to a marshy islet close to the western shore. There he rose up out of the water, only a mortal man, a small creature lost and abandoned on the wilds of Middle-earth. But to the night-eyed orcs that lurked there on watch, he loomed up, a monstrous shadow of fear, with a piercing eye like a star. They loosed their poisoned arrows at it and fled. Needlessly, for Isildur unarmed was pierced through heart and throat, and without a cry he fell back into the water. No trace of his body was ever found by elves or men. So passed the first victim of the malice of the masterless ring, Isildur, second king of all the Dúnedain, lord of Arnor and Gondor, and in that age of the world, the last. How about that? Isildur, in this version, dies in exactly the same way, shot by orcs who are shooting from the bank as he is laboring in the stream uh, after he's lost the ring again. Like, every detail of the story is the same, except for the fact that the orcs weren't hunting him. That's the only difference. But here, instead of ending, I mean, what we get in the Silmarillion, again, in my reading of that, is what we are seeing as a tragic fall. We are seeing even before his death, Isildur has been corrupted by the ring to the point where he has now, like, how how far have the great fallen, right? Um, the mighty Isildur, um, the the mighty Isildur is now, has fled his, you know, is, is now, uh, Captain Foolhardy, betrayer of his friends. I'm going to do like a Glaurung-like list of epithets here for poor Isildur. Um, You know, he he is now fallen to a place barely barely even, um, you know, above the level of human and is shot in the back by orcs as he's swimming in the river. And yet, um, though almost all the details are the same, here, he is making such an end as shall be worth a song, right? I mean, this is, uh, I think, dramatically reformed. Um, and what he's doing, and it starts from the beginning. It's not just that the details now make him out to be very impressive instead of kind of sad uh, and, and, uh, uh, and, and having fallen tragically low, as in the Silmarillion story. Um, from its roots, it's different. Now his whole motivation for leaving is changed. It is now self-sacrificial. Self-sacrificial in the same way that Akhtar was self-sacrificial, right? Not just He's not sacrificing his life. He's sacrificing more. It would have been easier for him to die with his sons and to die with his men, as any good captain in general would want to do under those circumstances. It's, you know, especially Isildur, like we've seen him before, casting his defiance against the enemy to the bitter end. That is what Isildur wanted to do, but instead he has sacrificed not his life, but his honor. and uh, Or at least potentially. You know, because people might tell stories like they do tell in the Silmarillion about him, and it would all be true, and he's going to look bad, but he's going to give up his reputation for the sake of the chance to save the ring. Um, that is pretty remarkable. 
it's a pretty remarkable shift that we get here. He his character is being recuperated in a way which is um, again I just I think quite unlike anything that we've seen before. Um, Roy asks, "This is a Gondorian account, whereas the Silmarillion is Elvish, right?" Probably yes. Um, uh, could that account for it? Yes, possibly. It's not how it's accounted for, though, within this story. I would want to. I would want to lean too hard on that, mostly because um, Tolkien gives us the explanation for why this version of the story is different. This is now the untold version of Isildur's end. Um, remember, there were almost no witnesses, right? You know, much was uh, much was speculated about the death of Isildur before. But now, in the beginning of the Fourth Age, new evidence has emerged, right? Um, thanks to the researches of uh, King Elessar, we've now learned more. They've, they've located... They know that Saruman located where, where Isildur's body ended up, right? So they know which bank of the river he was on. They know that, uh, uh, you know, they, they, of course they always knew that he lost the ring there because Diego found it there. Um, you know, they have all of this other evidence. Notice also the eyewitness to his final conversation with Elendur and his, uh, um, his departure is a new addition. Before we were told that Octar, the only three survivors all left with Octar. Now there's an, the, you know, one of those survivors has been left behind. Um, one of the people who actually survived the battle and could go on and say the circumstances under which Isildur departed. We didn't have that testimony before. That's again, it's another change. It's another inconsistency from the earlier stories. But again, you can see how this version of the story is pushing and pushing pretty strongly at Isildur in some particular directions. Um, well, as I said, I'm going to let you guys go. I know this has been uh, a challenging session in some ways. I apologize again uh, for the difficulties uh, that uh, I've been having. I think my audio has gone out again, and probably none of you uh, who are in the live session are actually hearing me at this particular moment. But again, I trust that those of you who are getting the recording will... Um, Tonight's been a bit of a fiasco technic, uh, for technical affairs, but I hope that our interface will be up and working like normal, in its normal, reliable way uh, tomorrow afternoon. So thank you, everybody, for bearing with me, uh, and uh, I will see you guys tomorrow. Good night.